Nathan McGrath works on behalf of public employees whose rights have been violated by union bosses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am in downtown Harrisburg uh, with Nathan McGrath. He is the President and General Counsel of the Fairness Center. Uh, Nathan, welcome to uh, Brews and Views. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here uh, because we've got a lot to talk about. Um, but before we get to that, I'd like you uh, to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, about the Fairness Center, and some of the things that you're working on there with your colleagues. Great. Yeah. Well, I guess a little bit about myself. I'm a native of the great Commonwealth here, uh, although the western part, and I uh, grew up around uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, ended up actually uh, down on the hill in D.C. for a little bit of my career. Uh, went to law school after that and was in private practice for a little while back in Pittsburgh. And during that time, I got a lot of great litigation experience and really enjoyed that. But I started thinking, you know, I'd love to do something that has a bigger impact. And, and so I, I contacted uh, an old law school professor, actually, that I knew in the public interest world. And I just said, you know, could you just kind of keep your eyes open for me just to maybe thinking about a change? And within a day, uh, he called me with an opening. The next day, I was offered a job. And uh, that's how I ended up actually in the public interest uh, profession, I guess, in, in the world and started my legal career in that area. And, and uh, I spent five years with National Right to Work at a national uh, practice there representing uh, public employees, mainly uh, in federal class action cases. And so after that, uh, the former president here at the Fairness Center, David Osborne, got in touch with me and recruited me up here. So I've been up here since uh, September 2016. So uh, you wanted to get away from the whole six-minute increments and uh, <laughs> that, that, that fun. Uh, yeah, I think every attorney does. <laughs> we, we'd all love to get away if, from that. If, if yeah. only everybody could, right? That's right. Uh, so yeah. so what, uh, describe the difference between kind of private practice law and public interest law for folks that aren't familiar with uh, what a public interest uh, law firm does. Sure. So uh, in the private sector, you're there to make money. That's what you're about uh, you, you know, hopefully you like your clients and you, and you obviously want to represent them well and to do, to do good, but the end of the day is to make money for your firm. And so it's a lot more uh, business-oriented in that sense. You're always, you know, running down clients and you need them to pay you and you're doing billables and all, all that comes with that. And, and sometimes you even get to practice law, too, <laughs> which, you know, that's what we all thought we were going like to do. Like be in front of a, a judge and yeah, a, a that's, jury. Yeah, exactly. And, Writing briefs. That, you know, that's what you have in your mind. That's what I'm going to do when I get out. And then you find out all the business involved in it. And so, uh, you know, that, that was fine. And I did that for a couple of years. And, but in the public interest world, uh, we, we have um, really the, the neat opportunity. I, I tell people uh, a lot of times... I get to actually be the lawyer that I always envisioned being in the mm. public interest world because we have clients who, who come to us. We don't even really go and find them. And they're wonderful people because 
they have some principle or, or they've been harmed in some way that doesn't really make sense a lot of times for a, a private firm to take on. And it really doesn't even make economic sense for these people to go to a private firm because, you know, oftentimes within an hour or two of an attorney's time, they, it wouldn't be worth their money because a lot of times their cases are a couple hundred dollars. But the principle, the principle is very mm. important because it's often constitutional rights, statutory rights, those types of things. So we have the great honor to represent them for free. And instead of hoping they pay or saying, you know, your options to appeal that may be limited because you just frankly can't pay the bill, one of those things, we can say, you know what, you have a wonderful principle here and we are going to represent you. And it's going to be free. And so we actually get to do legal work and cut out all that business part of, of doing the law. And so I, I'm thrilled to do it. I, I've done it for about uh, almost my whole career, almost 10 years now, and, and I've just loved it. So you became president of the Fairness Center uh, in June. Uh, here we are in June. So uh, That's right. Uh, but, of course, with the Fairness Center since uh, late uh, 2016, uh, and David Osborne has uh, moved on uh, from that role, and I know you stepped in very quickly and easily. Um, describe the Fairness Center. What kind of cases uh, do you litigate, uh, pursue? Who are you wanting to represent? Right. So the Fairness Center is a public interest law firm. And to, I guess, give you the technical thing, uh, our mission statement is that we represent those who have been hurt by public sector union officials. So that's kind of the bland statement. Mm -hmm. But really, if you peel that back, the people we get to represent are public school teachers or your local county worker or employee. Uh, we've represented even organizations that they have taxpayers as members or teachers as members. We've even represented a local union uh, as well. So we're not really limited in scope in to who we represent as long as their issue falls within our mission statement. And, and so that can be a little bit uh, broad. And we do it for free because, again, if they have a principle that is, is worth protecting and defending, uh, we don't want them to worry about any of that. And so we want them to feel that they're with a competent law firm. It's not going to cost them anything. And they can just really be the uh, principle bearers that they want to be. There, there are lots of public interest law firms across the country. I mean, people are familiar with things like the ACLU uh, mm -hmm. and others. Um, this is a, a relatively unique area of practice, uh, correct? Uh, it know, is, yeah. And, and why is that? Why, why is the Fairness Center focused on uh, those who are harmed by uh, public sector union bosses? Yeah, so it's very, a very niche area. Last time I counted, there's probably less than 50 of us in the country who do what we do. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're very focused because we wanted to be excellent in our area of law, and we didn't want to spread ourselves across everything. But what we found was um, that there's a real uh, gap in the system, I guess you could call it. So oftentimes, the employer or the state, they obviously have their government lawyers, and they're well-funded. And, and then you have the, the unions, and they're really well-funded, and they've got a lot of attorneys too. But often lost in that you know, that wash is is the employee oftentimes, whether they're a union member or a non-member or, you know, whatever, they're they're kind of like the little guy. Mm -hmm. They have nobody. And so when their employer or the union tramples their rights, they don't have anyone to go to. They don't have a pot of gold that's just sitting around, you know, that they can go and get 
uh, an attorney to spend $200,000 on a case for their constitutional right that's, you know, in the eyes of the law worth $300 or something like that. So we fill such an important gap. I, I like to say that our firm often times is the firm of last resort for these people. I can't tell you how many times when they come through our doors, they say, nobody else would listen to me or nobody else would take my case. Uh, you guys are it. If you don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And, and that's a really neat opportunity for us to step forward. And it's something that our investors and those who uh, support us, they see the value in. And, and we're the, the ones that are the face of that. We're honored to do that. But it's um, in large part because a lot of investors and people around the country have decided this is an important area for this firm to step into. Well, we know how important teachers are. Of course, the vast majority of kids are in public schools. And so uh, protecting good teachers or defending their rights. And then, of course, all sorts of other types of uh, public employees. So you you are a, a pro worker, pro you know teacher, public employee uh, type of organization. How do you respond to those folks who say, "Well, you're just anti-union. That, that you're just trying to bust the unions." How do you respond to charges uh, along those lines? Yeah, well, I used to just say that's absolutely not correct. In yeah. fact, if if the unions, I've even won over union officials when they've said certain things like that to me before. And I'll just say, you know, if you guys just stayed in your lane and did what folks wanted you to do and allowed people to join or leave as they mm -hmm. wanted, I'd be out of a job. I would have <laughs> nothing to do. So that's my, that's my, my normal, you know, come back you're not to that. Into, you're you're yeah. pro freedom of association. Yeah, that people exactly. to be able to engage in collective bargaining and things uh, that, yeah. that a, a union does. Yeah. So if people want to choose that, that's fine. And so, but my latest comeback now is, well, we actually represented a local union, so uh -huh. we can't be anti-union. We represented them. They were our clients, you know. So. Well, I want to come back to that okay. because I know that that is an interesting and, and unique case where, where the Fairness Center worked on behalf of a mm -hmm. local union against yeah. the state union, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah, the state Well, the let's, state let's union, jump so. into that right now. What's okay. it, so how did this come about that... Uh, the so-called, you know, anti-union fairness center is actually right. representing a union. Yeah, it's a really unique case. So a lot of times in the union world, you have um, what's called unified membership. And that means there's usually a national organization, a national union, then there's a state union, and then there's a local union. And if you're part of one, you have to be part of all of yeah. them. So unified our, dues, correct? Is yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. Unified membership, unified dues. So your money goes all the way up the chain. So, um, but this is an interesting situation. Our client, uh, they were the local union for the uh, firefighters in New Haven. So over 300 firefighters there. They had a local union, uh, very robust union, and they were members of both their state affiliate and the national affiliate, which I'm sure you've heard of the IAFF. Right. And, and uh, they decided, you know, a new administration was elected into the local, and they were saying, man, we've got to get our books in order. Uh, where can we cut costs? And, and what things are giving us value and what aren't? And as they did that evaluation, they thought, you know, the state union is, is not really giving us a lot of value here. We have people who represent us well from our local anyway at the Capitol. And um, we could save yeah, about $30,000 a year if we cut ties with them. And, and the goal initially was not to cut ties for, forever. It was just, hey, we've got to get our fiscal house mm -hmm. in order. We've, we've got to do something here. And so, and the value that the state was providing was said, hey, we can handle that. At yeah, the local they said level. we yeah. can handle that in-house. Our new president is excellent up there. He's well-known. 
well-spoken, we can take care of that. And, and it even got to the point where they were finding themselves sometimes on the other side of, of uh, policy battles mm. with than what the state was pushing. So the state was pushing on one side of a bill, and they were actually either against it or you know, opposed to it. And so they were thinking, this, this isn't working for us. So the, they took a vote of the e-board. They decided to disaffiliate from the state. And uh, they let the state know, hey, we've done this, maybe not for forever, but we need to disaffiliate for now. And the state said, no, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. You can't do that to us. And uh, you, you became know, a member of this country club and you will continue. That's to right. Pay. Yeah. Whether in death or in life, yeah. you, you are a member. And, and uh, the local didn't take that really well because they said, no, we're an autonomous organization and we can, you know, our leadership has decided to leave. And so it took about two years of back and forth, some failed meetings. Uh, they definitely, um, you know, the local stopped paying. They said, we're not going to pay you anymore because we're not a we're member not, yeah. as far as we're concerned. And we don't want any benefits that you're providing, uh, so we don't shouldn't have to pay. Exactly. And, and the state uh, started to ramp up the pressure, and they even sent our client to collections. And the collections officers started sending uh, letters, and they even made phone calls to some of our clients' leadership's uh, elderly parents uh, trying to, to get this money. And, and it kind of came to a head, and, and our client found out or got wind that they may be getting sued for this. And they said, you know, we need legal help pretty quickly. And so individually, that they, that they could be sued? Well, uh, the, the union, I think it was okay. going to be the local union okay. that was going to be sued for it. But, you know, you kind of throw everyone into a lawsuit and see what right, comes out. Right. So, uh, so the president of the union got a hold of us and said, hey, I don't, I don't know if you guys will do this or not, but we need help. And uh, so we, we looked at it and we said, you know, doggone it, this falls within our mission. Let's do it. Let's help these guys. And uh, very deserving of help, by the way. And so we filed a lawsuit and we got right in there. And then the state, uh, not to be outdone, they decided, well, we're going to file charges against your client's leadership. Maybe we can pull them out. And, and I think they're trying to end the case by doing that. And so that became part of the issue, too. And, and we ran into court and we got uh, the court to order that to stop and said, no, 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 no. We're not going forward with these goofy charges until we figure out whether they can disaffiliate or not and what kind of the fallout is from that. And so this case lasted for a while, and I won't get into all the nitty-gritty details, but through it all, what our client found out was the state association, not only were they against them sometimes policy-wise and not giving them a lot of value, but their leadership was flying around to exotic places, blowing money on all sorts of stuff, including fiancés and you know briefcases and clothes and like shows and all this sort of stuff. And they start going, man... I don't, we don't think we're ever coming back because <laughs> our dues money is totally being used for their just personal enrichment. This mm -hmm. isn't helping us at all. And so the case took even a bigger turn, not just affiliation or not, you know, are we a member or not, but now you've done wrong with our money. And uh, we're, we want some back. Yeah, we're going to correct that too. <laughs> and so um, our, our clients won their disaffiliation. The court said, you know, you're disaffiliated. That's clear. No problem. And so the next issue became uh, finances, basically, who gets what. And uh, our clients decided it was in their best interest at that point. Uh, there is a chance that they may have to pay some back dues because what the court did say was, well, maybe you're out, but 
you might have to pay for the rest of the year, basically. And that would have been about 30000 maybe. So mm. our clients didn't have to give them anything. They got out, and they got everything they wanted, and, and so they, they decided to call it a day at that point. But the court even noted in, a couple, in one of its opinions that, you know, there's some fishy stuff going on with their pack. There's some expendit- personal expenditures that eh, there may not be any evidence that it's been reimbursed. And so I think the court was picking up everything that our client was, was uh, discovering as well. So it- Have there been uh, additional investigations or uh, potential for uh, them being punished for some of these activities? Or is that, not, is that all moot at this point? Well, I don't know that it's moot, but that it's no longer, the case isn't going any longer. Okay. So that's kind of, I, I don't know. I haven't kept an eagle's eye on that anymore, but I'm sure it's had some repercussions. But uh, when you shine uh, light into dark corners, uh, sometimes things scurry out that uh, you weren't oh, expecting. Yeah. I know that we've reformed some of their ways through okay. it. So uh, it definitely was a spotlight on it. And, and the firefighters all, all through Connecticut actually now know at least that they are now no longer naive about what's going on at the state level. Well, I know in terms of where you litigate, uh, that was a bit of an outlier in terms of where the majority of your focus is uh, here in Pennsylvania. That's true. Um, But uh, before we get into some of the cases uh, here in Pennsylvania that you're working on uh, or have solved already, uh, we're we're talking at the two-year anniversary of the Janus v. AFSCME Supreme Court case. Uh, which granted right to work, uh, meaning you can't force a public employee uh, to pay dues to a union to keep their job, Um, something that uh, was a landmark case and uh, certainly changed a lot of the dynamics in the public sector. Um, How are are we at today, two years since that time? Uh, Have we seen dramatic changes in public sector unionism? Has it changed some of the litigation? Because here it's you know, you were two years in at the Fairness Center. This landmark case happens. Um, what, were there, was this a tectonic shift in, in public sector law uh, in Pennsylvania? Well, it, it definitely spurred and brought on a lot of new lines of litigation. But let me back up for a second, okay. because before I tell you about that, it's, it's important to know kind of how Janice came about. So uh, the rule, basically what you said, where before Janice the union could actually have money taken from a public sector employee even if they weren't members of the union and they had to they mm-hmm. had to pay union uh, fees so sometimes they're called agency fees sometimes fair share fees i don't know how fair they were but you know <laughs> that aside uh, so they had to they had to pay the union something, and that was based off of a case uh, called Abood back in 1977. And so that came down as the law of the land. And you know, I, I think people at times hoped that it would be changed, but for many, many years, decades even, no one ever thought that that would be gone. And then in in 2012, there was a case called Knox, and it was about a completely different issue, but. Uh, the justice who was writing the opinion at the U.S. Supreme Court put put a line or two in there about, you know, I'm not sure about, I'm paraphrasing, of course, yeah. but he, he said it much more eloquently. But basically, the tone was, we're not real sure about this Abood thing, yeah. you know, and, and but it kind of left it at that. And uh, then there was a follow-up case about two years later, it was called Harris. And, uh, and, and in that case, there was a lot stronger language about, mm, Abood may be a real impingement here. There, mm. there may be a real problem. And so everyone saw that as, okay, they really are inviting us to come 
before the court uh, with this issue. And so a couple years later, that's when you had Mark Janice's case go up. And, and so I, I say that because to get to where the litigation now has come, uh, so we had the Janus decision, which is a public employee, a non-member public employee can't be forced to pay union fees as a condition of employment anymore. And that's, like I said, spurred a lot of litigation. And there's, there's three main categories, basically, that it's, it's dropped into. The, the first category is kind of commonly called clawback cases. So people now have said, you know, I've been a non-member all this time. And according to the Supreme Court, I actually had the right not to pay that money for, for all that time. So I'm going to file a lawsuit and try to go basically retroactive and, and pull it all back. And, and why I say that's important is because one of the arguments in that case is the union should have seen this coming because for you know about six years or so, there were cases now on the book where the justices at the Supreme Court were calling into question whether Abood was okay or not. And, and so that's one of the, the main arguments for those cases. Uh, what the courts have mainly been saying right now is that, well, you know, there's a good faith defense. The unions acted in good faith, actually, because uh, Abood was on the books, and so we're just going to give them a pass on it. And sh sure, going forward, they can't take your money, but we're not going to give you any money back. Mm -hmm. And so those types of cases have been litigated nearly in every circuit and district across the country. And uh, they're actually... Janus 2.0 is up in front of the Supreme Court right now to see whether the Supreme Court will grant it cert or not, and it's over that very issue. So Mark Janus won his case and went back then and said, hey, what about my fees? Don't I get fees back? And so it's going to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Probably within the next week or so, we're going to find out, is the court actually interested in taking up that case now and that issue, whether people can get their fees going back? So that's one line of the cases that's been going on. Uh, the second line... Uh, the unions kind of saw Janus coming and what was going to happen, and so they started making people sign all these uh, dues deductions cards. So basically, how the system works typically across the country is you sign up to be a member of the union, and the unions negotiated with the state employer, the government employer, that, hey, you know, why don't you take their money right out of their paycheck and send it to us? And so in order to do that, you have to have an authorization. So people often will sign an authorization when they're signing their mm -hmm. membership. Oh, and we'll make it easier yeah. so you don't have to write a check. That's right. Or, yeah, That's right. right. Yeah. It's all on one page. Yeah, don't right. worry about yeah. it. It comes out just like your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like your taxes. Exactly <laughs> like your taxes, except they come to us. Yeah. So uh, what they did, though, when they saw Janice coming was they put a new line in their card that says, regardless of my membership status, I will continue to pay, and they give these mm. people very narrow window periods to get out. It's you know 15 days before the anniversary date of your card. Well, no one even usually has their card, knows their anniversary date or anything like that. So getting out, that's a whole different aside. But the second line of cases is basically, are those cards valid now? Because you have people who are getting out of the union and saying, hey, stop, stop withholding my dues. And they say, sorry, you signed this card. You have to pay for at least another year still. And the question in those cases is that because Janice said non-members, they, they can only have their money taken now for the union if there's uh, a clear waiver of their constitutional right not to pay. And does the language in those cards actually constitute a proper waiver for these people? 
Um, so those, that's kind of the issue in that line of cases. And then the third line is basically over the membership issue because what unions realized was, well, before Janice, we didn't really care if people were members or not because we still got money either yeah. way. And it was pretty much the got same 80%, the same 90%, amount. right? Yeah, yeah, at worst. Yeah. Sometimes in oh. some states they could collect as much as union dues unless people took a second step sometimes every year to reaffirm that they didn't want to pay mm. the full amount. Before I came to the Fairness Center in my other life when I was doing this type of work too, I had unions that I litigated against. Their membership rate was like 53%. They didn't care, though, because that other 47%, they didn't know they had to take an extra step. (laughs) They paid the same amount Uh, as union dues. So it didn't matter to them. And then you also don't have to listen to those voices. That's right. So it's kind of a a nice arrangement. They're not members, so they have no say, (laughs) but we still get money like they're members. So that was pre-Janus. Now, post-Janus, they realized, you know, no matter our shenanigans with the cards or not, once they get out of the union, at some point, we can't take money from them. And so the battle line moved from the, f- the fees issue to the membership issue. And so they started putting up a lot of roadblocks to uh, allowing people out or, you know, people even knowing they could get out or, or that whole process. And so there's been a whole line of litigation over membership uh, restrictions. And so uh, when it comes to, to membership, there's a term called maintenance of membership. Um, can you explain what that means and uh, cases that you have uh, in that line of, of some of the opportunities to, to help protect employees? Right. So a maintenance of membership, we call it a mom provision, uh, just for short. But it basically means you must maintain your membership for a certain period of time, and you can only get out under uh, certain, you know, a certain specification. And this is in the collective bargaining agreement that is signed by the employer and says, yeah, here's, your, here's your window in which you can resign from the union and stop paying these dues and fees. That's right. Yeah, it's a state-enforced um, resignation restriction oftentimes. And so in Pennsylvania, uh, it's very unique in that even in state law, it, it gives them the authority to put in these maintenance and membership uh, restrictions and provisions into the collective bargaining. Now, in other states, sometimes they just put it into the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, and there's no statute on the books. But here in PA, uh, <laughs> employees are often bound by, you know, the statute allows it, the CBA is the, you know, is the mechanism where it's really written down. And so, uh, and, and in PA, like you said, it's, uh, you can only, the window period is the 15 days before your, your collective bargaining agreement expires which you might think, okay, well, you know, that's, that's fair. But these collective bargaining agreements are years upon yeah. years. So, if, so we just signed one on Ju- July 1, but on right. August 1, I say, eh, and it was a four-year agreement. Yep. I say, eh, I don't want to be a member of the union. They will say, nope, sorry, you have to pay for three years and 11 months. Uh, exactly. And, and yep. you can't get out of that. Exactly. Per what, you know, PA law says and, and these membership provisions, that would be true. They, this is like worse than a Verizon contract for your oh, cell phone, right? Way worse. Way <laughs> worse than gym memberships or anything else. I mean, like this this is the deal of the deal for the unions. Uh, because And then you have a 15-day window period. People forget or they miss it yep. by a day or whatever it is. Guess what? They're stuck into another entire term of the contract. So, uh, But there is good news on that front, uh, there's a lot of litigation challenging the restrictions to membership because, 
you know, from our point of view and our client's point of view, this is a restriction, a, a massive impingement upon their First Amendment rights, freedom of association and speech, because association is pretty self-evident yeah. because I'm forced to remain a union member. But the speech comes in, I'm forced to remain a member. My money continues to go to the unions for their political speech and their use. And so they're even forced into political speech through this. And so we've challenged it through a lot of lawsuits. Some other folks have done that as well. And there is hope because twice that I know of this issue has started to to make it into the court. Unions usually try to moot it out and shut it down really mm -hmm. quickly. But actually in the middle district in Pennsylvania here, there is a case. And in the southern district in California, there was another case. And the judges in both those cases said, you know, there is a real problem with prohibiting people from resigning from their unions if they change their mind about it. And so uh, unions in both of those cases quickly settled and got out of the case. So it never went to like mm. ran the full length of mm -hmm. it so that we can have a Because really they know they probably lose particularly with Janice, correct? That's basically giving people the ability to not pay the union um, and that this, is this in violation of Janice? Is that what no, you would argue? No, no. Janice didn't really deal with the membership issue. Mm -hmm. Where Janice would be really detrimental to them is if the floodgates are open and they can't tell people that they, they're restricted from resigning whenever, yeah. lots of people could just run through the gates, as I think they should be allowed to do, and they wouldn't ever have to pay again. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is... There, the membership issue was a big deal before Janice, but now it's a really big mm. deal to be able to somehow block folks from leaving. So they have the maintenance of membership issues uh, provision, plus sometimes, you know, they lose the letter or they never respond mm. to our clients or, you know, they find all sorts of mm -hmm. ways basically, and not all unions, but, you know, some unions basically to make these folks feel like it's a dead end. What can I do? I'll just give up. And, and that's where our law firm and some others around the country are really the lighthouses for these folks because we say, no, there is, there is a way. You know, let us help you with this. Otherwise, they would just be really frustrated and wouldn't be able to get to move forward. What are some of the other uh, litigation that you're pursuing right now or that, that are continuing that are striking at the root of some of these powers that are limiting public employees' uh, rights? Yeah, so uh, a case that we actually just wrapped up that was really successful was we had a client, his name was John Cabler, and he uh, worked uh, for uh, as a liquor store clerk in the Pennsylvania system. Really excited to get his job, and um, he, he was just thrilled to go to work for the Commonwealth. And he, he gets there, and right off the bat, he's forced into this mandatory orientation session with the union. And uh, in that, in and that, the union is the United Food and Commercial Workers, correct? Yeah, the local yeah. 1776. Yeah, and so they they represent all the liquor store uh, employees. And I'm not sure if it's the first or second day there, or first week, but anyway, right off the bat, gets put into this mandatory session, and the union says, "You have to uh, be part of the union uh, in order to keep this job. It's a condition, term, and condition of your employment." And he was like, "Oh man." I, I don't want to be part of the union. I mean, I don't care that there's a union here, but I don't want any part of it. They don't represent me in my politics. They don't represent me in my business deal. I'm a smart guy. He's very well educated, lots of degrees. He said, I, I don't need this. And they, the union even supported this notion by sending him a letter from the union president saying, as a condition of employment, you must be a, a member of the union. And even further down in the, the letter, if he didn't stay as a member in good standing of the union, 
they can take him off the, the work rotation, off, <laughs> off of the list. And so he was feeling, you know. Like who's the employer here? Is it uh, well, the, it's the, the state? Or, yeah, but no, it sounds like you've handed over employment uh, decisions to the union. Well, you know, it's basically the, I think the underlying threat was basically we're going to let the state know and they're going to take yeah. you off the list. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, the letter We know did, somebody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we know somebody. Don't worry about that. Yeah. So uh, he was feeling under a lot of uh, pressure and he needed the job, really wanted the job. He was very yeah. excited actually about this job. And so he signed it uh, begrudgingly and even told them, this isn't going to go well for us because I don't want to be part of the union. Told mm-hmm. them right up front. And so he's in his job, and then he heard about the Janus decision. And he said, well, boy, that might be something I want to take advantage of. And so he started looking into it, and he found out, you know, what they did to me was wrong. I don't have to be a union member as a condition of my employment. And beyond that, now that Janus has come mm. out, once I do get out, I don't owe them a dime. And so he tried to resign and claim his Janus rights, and the union said no. And uh, so he found us, and that's where we stepped in, and we were able to file a lawsuit for him. And uh, they, they relented on the union membership part, and they, they wanted to fuss with us a little bit longer about whether they still got to take money from him or not. But at the end of the day, actually, he got all his money back all the way to the date of his employment, mm with interest, got out of the union. And I think, you know, the the case was really well publicized. And I really think got the word out, you know, like, you don't have to be a member of the union as a condition of employment, and you don't have to pay these guys. And that's really what actually, at the end of the day, what he really wanted was other people not to get hoodwinked like he was, basically, mm-hmm. where you have all the union officials saying as a condition of your employment, I mean, that's been illegal for years. That's not even a Janus thing or anything. Right, right. You've never had to be a union member yeah. as a condition of employment. And and so his main thing with that case was, I, I just want everyone to know this so that doesn't happen to them. And so you've uh, seen that through, uh, yeah. won it for your client. Going forward, where do you see the greatest opportunities in order to maybe change some of the laws uh, that, yeah. that currently exist that, that hinder uh, employees' rights? Uh, well, and, I'd say and, one of the cases we're really excited about right now is the Hartnett case. And this is uh, for public school employees who they actually brought their case before Janice as well. And it was the same claim as Janice, actually. It was, okay. you know, we shouldn't be forced to pay fair share fees. Janice made it first, so uh, our client's case got put on pause until after Janice. Well, after Janice, what they said was, you know, Pennsylvania still has laws on the book that still authorize fair share fees. We want our case to take those laws off or have them at least have a judge strike it down as, you know, null and void. This isn't constitutional Mm -hmm. anymore. And so what they've been pursuing with their case, and it's now before the Third Circuit, and really a decision could drop any day now at this point, is, hey, bring Janice to Pennsylvania. So... The Janus case was about an Illinois worker and an Illinois statute, and the Supreme Court ruled. And, of course, all the courts should get in line and obey that. But here in Pennsylvania, per Janus, we still have unconstitutional law on the books. So that's what our clients want to do with their case. So so, uh, state law allows for unions to still negotiate for those so-called fair share fees that Janus said are illegal. You cannot charge non-union members for those fees without their consent. Um, 
are, are unions still negotiating them into collective bargaining agreements then? Because it, if they can still negotiate it, uh, why wouldn't they? Yeah, you're correct. The law is still on the book. Technically, you can still negotiate that. And that's actually something that our clients brought up in their heart in that case is we filed examples of the Pennsylvania State Education Association and its locals after Janus still continuing to negotiate in fair share fee provisions in contracts signed after Janus. Hmm. They know full well that these fair share fees can't be collected can't be acted upon, yet they're still continuing to put unconstitutional language in these collective bargaining agreements. Are they collecting money from uh, non-union members, or are they just putting it in there as a placeholder just in case they could overturn Janus? What, what's well, their thinking here? We we don't know if they've collected money or not. Okay. They say they haven't. They've told the courts that they haven't. But certainly that's in there as a placeholder, and it's certainly, think of it as a as a you know, good contract abiding employee, if you look through your contract yeah. and you go, oh, doggone, if I'm not a member, I still have to pay fair share fees because yeah. that's what my contract uh, says. Uh-huh. Well, maybe I'll just be a member then because right. it's only a couple bucks more. So like these people can be totally duped by their contract mm. language. And if, you know, we're kind of nerds because we're in this space and we know what's going on, but for the normal person, I'm sure they're not following these things. So Just the mere fact of having unconstitutional language in these collective bargaining agreements is a real problem in in true practical day-to-day life. Well, we hope that uh, the the courts uh, rule appropriately and quickly here uh, and uh, start to remove some of these uh, things that uh, exist in law. This could be done uh, legislatively too, correct? It sure could. Yep. The legislature could go through and say, hey, we're going to clean up our house a little bit here and there's some unconstitutional language on the books why don't we just put you know take that out so well uh, nathan mcgrath president and general counsel for the fairness center i appreciate you joining me here on brews and views and i wish you all the best in your tenure as as its new president thank you so much matt it was a pleasure You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.